Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Pastor, where we look at movies, music, comics, and more from the perspective of faith. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Lord Chris of House Perry, the pop culture pastor, first of his name. My guest this week is Sir Jefferson of House Ferguson. Uh, Jefferson, thanks for being on the show. Hey, do you have any house words? Hey, Chris. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Love the pod. Really appreciate being a guest here. I do have some house words, but um, interestingly enough, uh, my family, the Ferguson family, it's a Scotch-Irish name. Mm-hmm. So I've got some uh, words that I've thought of, and I also have some quote-unquote real house words. <laughs> so the ones that I have come up with, I've got uh, House Ferguson, Till We Stay. For me, it's because I'm trying to be relaxed and filled. So, yeah, I think mm-hmm. about house words. It's got to be aspirational a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to blow my top too much, so Till We Stay. But... For the actual family house words, I got a couple things. So there's dulces ex asperus, which means sweeter after difficulties. And that's saying like, right. you know, the, the Ferguson clan can get through difficulties with a smile is appropriate. And then um, from the Scott side, there is uh, some words that are, that are like clan Ferguson forever. So I feel like any of those like work in this situation. My uh, my pop culture pastor words would probably be, we'll get to that later, <laughs> because people <laughs> have pointed out every time I'm teaching or doing one of these, and they bring up stuff like, oh yeah, we'll we'll get to that, because I always have more to say, but we'll we'll try and keep it brief. Uh, well, as you may have guessed from what uh, we're introducing, or maybe you don't know what we're talking about, we're going to be talking about the show House of the Dragon, uh, the show Game of Thrones, and, and all of that work. And I know Jefferson has a lot of thoughts on that. But before we get into the show, I want to introduce our guests, as, as we always do. I, I met Jefferson when I was a college minister at, uh, down in Abilene, and you were at ACU at the time. because You were in the theater department, and we had a lot of connections to people there. Uh, so tell us, you know, to start a little bit of your spiritual bio, um, how um, how spirituality has been an influence in your life and gotten you to where you are. For sure. Yeah. Happy to share. So <clears throat> totally correct. We met um, in Abilene, a student at ACU. Uh, we were playing Left for Dead. I don't know if you remember that. That was one of oh, our yes. first link up moments. But um, Classic. so I was raised rough. Presbyterian, I'll say. I uh, okay. mentioned roughly because I can't really, I can't really think of a specific enough things that are like tenants of that denomination. Uh, moved around a lot as a kid, so my family was going to different churches and stuff. And um, I didn't really have a lot of success, I'll say, connecting in an intimate way with any of these due to moving or like the youth group not being like connected to where I went to school. And so um, it's kind of a mixed bag for me. Um, I originally wasn't planning on attending any kind of religious school, but, uh, you know, full disclosure, my parents said they would help me with college if I did. So then um, with ACU, obviously, um, you know, it all worked out for the best, but I've had a really complicated relationship with uh, religion. Um, I have a lot Mm -hmm. of 
faith leaders and ministers in my family, like going back for generations. Um, my brother is a, is a youth and family minister. And um, I'll say today, while I am, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ and I, you know, try to endeavor to follow his teachings. I have a, you know, a touch and go, I'll say, relationship with like Christianity as a religion. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's kind of something we'll talk about today with the show of organized religion and the, all the ways it can be problematic, especially when it gets tied up in, in politics. Mm. But one of the other things we always start with is some of your early pop culture interests. So what were some of the things that really got you excited as, you know, movies, comic books, that sort of thing? For me as a little kid, like my very first thing is all the Star Wars, like mm -hmm. had the Millennium Falcon full of toys, you know, had the figures, the sets, like that was always my number one thing. One of my most vivid memories ever was my parents taking my brother and I to the, uh, the 1997 re-release of A New Hope mm -hmm. uh, and the other originals. Like I still remember sitting in the theater, watching those movies. And just for my personal life, like the way I can really tell when a movie has resonated with me is when I can specifically remember watching it in the theater. And so <clears throat> I've got tons of interests and I'm, I'm a lot of fandoms. I read a lot of books, read a lot of comic books, play games. You know, I'm interested in more things that I'm not interested in. Yeah. One of the things I like to say is that I'm obsessed with everything I like. But talk about our early beginnings for me, uh, the OG will always be Star Wars. There you go. That's a good place to start. Yeah, I remember growing mm -hmm. up and my dad just always having the like the VHS on in the background. So nice. it's literally in the air. Well, yeah, and part of the reason I asked you on the show today is uh, you know, friends on Instagram and everything I see you sharing, it's like, yeah, I, I agree with that. That's a good take. <laughs> and we, we seem to share a lot of interest. And one of those interests has been uh, the new show House of the Dragons on mm. HBO Max. So if you're not familiar with it, this is a prequel to the Game of Thrones series. It's following the House. Uh, well, the House of the Dragon is the Targaryens. This is kind of the ruling monarchy in uh, this fantasy world of Westeros from writer George R.R. R. Martin. And uh, what were your expectations going into this show? Were you a, a big Game of Thrones fan before that? Um, what were you thinking with House of the Dragon? Yeah, uh, so I can speak for myself. I was extremely excited for House of the Dragon. I am an enormous, not just Game of Thrones, but also the book series, the world at large. Mm -hmm. I've got a map of Westeros in my house. I've got the world of Ice and Fire coffee table book. Um, I, I even like, I only learned about the series when the show was announced, the original Game of Thrones mm -hmm. was announced. I didn't know about it prior to that, but I wanted to read it before I watched it. So, uh, while season one of Game of Thrones was airing, that's when I started to read the book. And so then, you know, I got through all of them, uh, during the run of that season and then the hiatus. So then I started watching the show. I, I caught up on season one right before season two aired. So that was kind of my journey there. But with House of the Dragon, obviously it goes without saying everyone was largely disappointed in the season eight ending of Game mm -hmm. of Thrones. Um, so, though, it was not as much of a crippling blow because I was interested in House of the Dragon from the jump, largely because George R. R. Martin, the creator, was testified to be so much more heavily involved in the show than he was in the original. And also my thought about this is, you know, talk Turkey for a second. You know, this is HBO's unquestionably 
their biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was already so close to, you know, to be dramatic, so close to oblivion with the fan reaction, the cultural reaction to season eight. I, I don't know. My thought was that House of Dragon, it had to be good. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna make the effort. Hopefully, they learn something from it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I kind of similar. I didn't know much about Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire, the the series, until the show was coming out. And I can't remember when I started reading. It may have been around the same time. I was like, okay, I'm gonna check this all out. And so I read all of the books. I read a little bit of the extra stuff. Doesn't sound like quite as much as as what you've uh, read into. But yeah, just loved that series until it kind of went off the rails at the end. Once mm-hmm. they got past the books and really it's I think it's more they tried to rush things at the end yeah it's not that what happened was you know didn't work for the characters they just didn't take the time right yeah it was, it was far too compressed mm-hmm. and so I uh, I'm, I was kind of the opposite where I was like I don't even know if I'm gonna watch this new show because I was just mm-hmm. so disappointed with the others and you know I was a little more pessimistic about whether they would learn anything but uh, I think maybe you were the one that convinced me hey we'll check it out and see and I just I loved it from the jump. Uh, it, nice. It, it's everything that you loved about Game of Thrones, and it does kind of feel like they've learned. Uh, you know, I, one of the biggest criticisms of the original show is how it handled female characters and mm-hmm. and sexuality and sexual violence, especially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like they're they're doing much better. I know we're two white dudes talking about this. <laughs> so right. I tried to. We're acknowledging it. We'll acknowledge that reality, though. Right. You but know? you know, Renarius and Alicent are. Mm-hmm the female characters are really the main characters, right? The central conflict is really mm-hmm. between them. And I know they've had female directors for uh, a good number of the episodes. And, and that mm-hmm. right there changes the way that, you know, sexual scenes are filmed. Uh, go figure. Yeah. Um, Michelle McLaren was the uh, only female director in the entirety of the Game of Thrones original series. She directed four of the, I believe, 73 episodes, you know, and, and she's the only one. But mm-hmm. here we are, season one, House of the Dragon. Um, there's already been, there's three female on this season, Jane Espenson, Vanessa Taylor, and Gorsman Sandu, as well as, um, female directors. And so it's just like, I don't know, it's, it's a female focused story. And while Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik, George R. Martin, like, you know, the main EPs and, uh, creators of the show are all men, like it goes without saying that so much more of both the, um, any kind of violence or implications of uh, even sexual violence, those are handled in a, in my opinion, and I think by the culture at large in a, in a stronger way. And just one example of that to me is that, um, wait, how do we feel about spoilers, Chris? Uh, that's a good question, right? The this first season just wrapped up. Maybe we'll we'll hold off on how the actual season ended, but if it's from you know the first half, then we can talk generally about I, that. You know, and I can just speak. I can speak vaguely, regardless. Um, oftentimes, you know, one of the most famous scenes from Game of Thrones that is derided for its sexual violence is when there's a, a major female character who is assaulted by a major male character, and then there is male character watching this happen and mm. while it begins focusing on you know the violence enacted on this innocent woman uh, but a lot of the emotional heft of the scene uh, is drawn from a man watching a man do something to a woman which is you know it's um it's, it can be very othering and it's a very mm. controversial moment whereas looking at house of the dragon um there is a character who is um assaulted by a, a, another uh, there's a female character assaulted by a male character but instead of depicting that violence, we see 
the reaction to it. And there's mm-hmm. a scene between the victim and then the assaulter's mother. And it is, it is gut-wrenching. It, see, it shows the way that you know, uh, women can also be proponents of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it shows all of that without us having to you know, depict actual violence, which in my opinion, I don't really think is necessary. Yeah, right. And that's that's kind of the tricky thing that mm-hmm. the show can do well, right? That it's thinking how how did things function in a world like this, right? This is a fantasy world, but it's very much based on kind of medieval Europe. Mm-hmm. And you have to acknowledge that this this kind of stuff was real and it happens. But yeah, yeah. the way you depict that, whether it's exploiting the 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 characters or if it's uh, really trying to say something and help us think about our own situation. Um, totally. And I couldn't agree more. One of the other things that I think helps the show is this tight focus. Really, it is just about this one family. As much as I love, you know, how sprawling Game of Thrones was with all the different houses over the whole, mm-hmm. this whole country and how they're all interacting. It, it's just a nice change of pace, I think, to uh, focus just here. Right? I know some people say like, when are we going to see the Starks and when are we going to see these people or, or go here? It's like, well, that's, that's not what this is doing. So that kind of makes it different. I totally agree. And like just looking at season one to season one, while season one of Game of Thrones does visit more locations than perhaps season one of House of Dragon does, I do feel like <clears throat> when people talk about there's so many characters in Game of Thrones, whereas House of Dragon is focusing on this one family. If you go back and rewatch season one, while there are still a lot of characters, so, so many of fan favorites, uh, you know, characters that become the biggest memes, mm-hmm. a lot of them weren't even in the first season. And so I think especially looking at episode 10 of House of the Dragon is, you know, there's the scene where a lot of the characters are discussing, you know, what their next moves are going to be. And they literally, there's one scene where they're just pointing out different locations on, on the country map. And it's letting us viewers know hey, expect this for the future. And they throw in those nuggets like Starks and Tully's mm-hmm. and famous names we know. And in my opinion, a lot of that is to maybe assuage some of the concerns that the show will keep this very streamlined scope. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, this first season is kind of all set up. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and I know I haven't read uh, Fire and Blood, the book that this is mm-hmm. based on. And I know that that's written more as a history. And so it's not getting as in depth, which, you know, gives a, a different kind of source material to work from, which is kind of right. interesting. And, and so like what's happened so far in the series, I think was like the first 12 pages, somebody said, but I've loved it, right? Like it, we don't need to rush to, that was the problem with the end of Game of Thrones, right? They rushed right. the end of it, but we're taking all this time to really invest in this family. And I think that's going to pay off a lot as we start expanding that we've, we've got this starting place. And, you know, it's still, there's still a lot of characters and it's still a bit confusing because most of them have blonde hair and have similar names. Yeah. Right. The names start with the same, you know, syllable, like half right. of them. Rhaenyra you know? and Rhaenyse, right. I still yeah, get that mixed Rhaenyra, up. Rhaenyse, and there's just Reyna, mm-hmm. there's Lena, Lanor, you know, like it's a, uh, it's a lot. There's two Viserys's, there's three sons, like there's, you you need you need to have it when there's this many characters when there's twenty characters and six names between them you gotta like we gotta take a little time to get to right. know them and I like I again I get it that's how medieval Europe was uh, right like Johns and and Hen- Henrys and Harrys but still <laughs> like come on just you may you can make a choice you can make it easier obviously. right <laughs> I also think the acting is is so great um, everyone they've had has has done amazing 
Um, I think one of the only complaints is, you know, so the show, again, for those who haven't seen, it's doing all these time jumps. It's covering about 20 years. And mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning, um, the, the two main female characters are played by these younger actresses, and they recast them about halfway through. <laughs> like Again, my only... Uh, disappointment is that I love those early characters. Those actresses right. were uh, so great. You got Matt Smith, who you know I love as a Doctor Who fan. My wife referred to him as Matt Damon. Uh, nice. So that's that's how I'm going to refer to him from now on. Um, and Patty Considine as King Viserys. Uh, I think he yeah. has done an amazing job. Absolutely incredible performance from Patty Considine. And yeah, when you're when you're in this fantasy world, and again, there's dragons, and everybody has these crazy names, it really makes such a difference to have uh, actors that can sell it and make these characters relatable and and believable. I think the performances on the show are incredible. Like I, I do have, like many other people, I do have some quibbles with you know some of the pacing, some of the plotting. But one thing I take no umbrage with is how incredible all the acting performances are. You're totally right that Millie Alcock and uh, Emily Carey, who play young Rhaenyra and young Allison, are absolutely amazing. I know there's been some hubbub online, like, oh, why can't they do the older versions, like put prosthetics on and blah, blah, blah. Uh, two things in that one, um, Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook were cast first, who play the mm-hmm. older versions of these characters. So my thought was, you know, we're, we're fortunate to even see that these younger actors get up to portray these parts, because that wasn't originally the plan, you know, when... Yeah. Ryan Condal, uh, who's the uh, the main showrunner because Mikhail Sapochnik, who co-show ran for season one, is leaving for season two. Um, when Ryan Condal went to George Martin to say, hey, let's do the show, George was like, we've got to do the beginning. Because in his original pitch, Ryan wanted the show to begin essentially with what season two will be. And yeah. so season one, as you said, is so much of a prologue in a lot of ways. But I think it's going to pay dividends in the end. But yeah, I just want to also shout out Eve Best as Rhaenys, um, as the queen who never was. Mm-hmm. I think all of the actors on the show are just incredible. I can't wait for more. Yeah, the the last episode, last couple in particular, where she's just kind of staring at the yeah, right. Like, what is she thinking? And again, like you you see, there there's so much going on in these characters' heads. There's so much um, nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many scenes where characters it's just based on their looks. Even, you know, I think about uh, Matt Smith as Damon in three. Uh, he's got like one line of dialogue in the entire episode. And it's all just done off of uh, his face. And, you know, you can only accomplish something like that when you're working with some of the best actors in the industry. So as we're thinking about the theme of today's episode, we're thinking about, you know, what role does religion play in this world? Uh, and so as you think about House of the Dragon, the first season, where have you seen religion be a, a factor or be important in uh, the way the characters interact or think? Yeah, well, I agree with you. It definitely has. Um, both shows, but since let's focus on House of the Dragon. Uh, religion is such an enormous part of it. You know, like something that makes this, in my opinion, uh, separate and unique to the fantasy are the multitude of religions that George R. R. Martin has created for this show. You know, oftentimes in fantasy, there will be one or two religions that are in direct conflict with one another, as opposed to this show where there's, you know, a dozen religions of varying relevance to the story. But um, yeah, religion is really taking a big part in this show because there's uh, the religion of, you know, the light of the seven, which is the main faith of Westeros. 
Allison Hightower space and, you know, one of her driving actions versus the, um, you know, atheist or even self-worshipping uh, religion of the Targaryens. You know, I mm. think about in episode two, Allison and Rhaenyra are in the Sept together. And the Sept is, you know, the Church of the Light of mm-hmm. Seven. And um, Rhaenyra says that she doesn't know how to pray. She doesn't know, like, what really that is. And because, you know, in the world of the Targaryens, they say it themselves, uh, Targaryens are closer to gods than to men. And that's how they see themselves. So, mm. um, you know, we worship ourselves. Whereas Alicent, not a Targaryen by blood, is, you know, a, and a high tower of old town. Um, and she is uh, very devout in the light of the seven. And that's something that definitely informs the character in greater strides throughout the season. Yeah, I think there's especially a shift uh, later on where this is the older versions of them. And so Rhaenyra has been gone for a while from um, from King's Landing and she comes back and all of a sudden all this Targaryen stuff is replaced mm-hmm. with uh, the seven pointed star, which is kind of like their cross, right? Like this is the right. symbol of that religion. And it kind of seems like Alicent has moved more and more into her faith. And you know, my take on that is it's kind of a, a guilt response after some of the things that she's done of like, okay, this is how maybe she can atone for some choices that she made or convince herself she's still a good person, right? Because she has a lot of faith. And so she's always wearing this uh, this star now that she, I don't think she was as much before. Totally true. Like as, as things get more, more murky and dark for Allison and her family, she delves even deeper into her piety, you know, which I agree can be a covering it can even be mm. you know uh a hedge of protection in a lot of ways because <laughs> good phrase um thinking thinking back to the the intersection between you know the non-religious targaryens versus the you know oftentimes highly religious um uh small folk the the seven in westeros thinking back to uh aegon the conqueror the very first ruler of the targaryens of westeros who came over from old Valyria and along with his sisters, Visenya and Nymeria, conquered the seven kingdoms with their three dragons. And um, one of the big tenets of Targaryen is that, you know, their bloodline passes their ability to ride dragons. And there's this concern that, you know, if Targaryens uh, intermarry too much or if they, uh, you know, don't keep that bloodline quote unquote pure, those are not my words, (laughs) um, that, Lose that ability, dragon. But that being said, in the face of the seven incest, obviously, is a big no-no. Mm-hmm. But what Aegon the first did was that in order to placate the faith, which is you know I think something we'll talk about, mm. or is political leaders placating religion, um, they were able to come up with this doctrine that gave Targaryens an exception where they could still practice incest and that was okay but nobody else could and so that's you know a very quick way of showing a a political leader um you know grabbing religion you know as a cover even if it's not something that they subscribe to and also the the church or i guess the faith allowing that for the sake of of power and to maintain their influence or just knowing like well we can't stop them from doing this so we're just going to say that our gods allow it Obviously, this would never happen in the real world. Uh, this is just <laughs> fantasy. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is our focus today. How do religion and politics influence each other in this world? 
And how do we see that mirrored in our world? Do we see any similarity to biblical accounts of divinely chosen kings? I just definitely want to say that um, I think it is very clear that you can draw parallels between uh, you know, politics of Westeros and it would be an extremely American thing to do to say America in general, but I would say just you know, modern politics writ large. While George R. R. Martin is American, um, obviously there's so many uh, European influences on this story and you know, the modern world politics I think can be seen in so many different avenues of the show. When it comes to biblical kings, I'm going to defer to your expertise on that, Chris. All right. We probably won't spend as much time on that in this one because I could do a whole series on Samuel and King, but we'll mention a little bit about it. Well, one of the other ways I want to approach this is kind of going back to a previous episode. Uh, If you listen to the episode Love of Power and the Power of Love, we Mm -hmm. talked about J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and we started that with a comparison to Game of Thrones. And uh, there's an article that we referred to there by David French that was comparing them and, and thinking about the difference in their worldview. But Lord of the Rings, I mean, it's obviously like the fantasy novel or series, right? And so obviously it was influential on, on mm-hmm. Martin as he was uh, thinking through this world. Uh, but the, part of the inspiration for Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire is asking this question of, what does it look like to actually be a good king, like in, in, in practical reality? And so here's a quote where he's, he's talking about Lord of the Rings. He says, ruling is hard. This was maybe my answer to Tolkien, whom, as much as I admire him, I do quibble with. Lord of the Rings had a very medieval philosophy that if the king was a good man, the land would prosper. We look at real history, and it's not that simple. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for a hundred years, and he was wise and good. But Tolkien doesn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? Did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? And what about all those orcs? Now, I would argue maybe talking about tax policies is not uh, the most exciting, you would think, although I guess Game of Thrones does get into that. All right, so he's kind of noting just the difference in, you know, the genre, that that more high fantasy of, of good, capital G versus evil, capital E. And, but he's trying to do something different and delve into that, right? One line about him being a good king. Okay, what, what does that look like in reality? And so that's, I think, where he's focusing in, in this work is, okay, what, what does the day-to-day look like, right? There is, you know, especially as you get further into the series in Game of Thrones, you know, these big, massive evils that need to be dealt with. Uh, but it, it is dealing with the realities of political leadership, now, uh, that article that, that we mentioned in the previous episode, the author there is making this comparison where in the world of Game of Thrones, it's very humanistic and hopeless that being virtuous is uh, kind of foolish because it'll probably get you killed. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, it's much more hopeful. Virtue is rewarded, and that's actually what sustains you through everything. How would you sum up the difference between something like Lord of the Rings, that fantasy, and Game of Thrones? Do you see any other differences in their overall perspective? Which do you prefer? I think that's an excellent question. Um, Yeah, I've also been, I love that Rings of Power pod you did. And I was loving uh, Rings of Power myself, just a quick aside. I think, well, I do think it's too bad that these shows aired simultaneously. That's not going to happen in the future, just based on, you know, the way that, the filming schedule seems to be working out for these two programs. 
But it is it is funny because, you know, George R. R. Martin, I mean, he's got the RR right in his name, you know, coming from J.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And so he's talked so about, you know, all his influence, all of Tolkien's influence on Martin's work. But it is funny because they do feel like two sides of the coin in some ways. Because mm-hmm. as you said yourself, hope is such a pivotal part of the experience of the Lord of the Rings. Whereas I think about in House of the Dragon, um, Corliss Valerian, one of the characters in this show, he's got a quote where he says, hope is the fool's ally, <laughs> which is like the least, the least tokenist thing I could begin to think, you know? Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I do think that there is often Sometimes people can misstep in saying that things that are cynical are more realistic, mm. um, which is not a philosophy that I personally subscribe to. I think that there's so much hope and beauty in our world. Oftentimes we need to, uh, to look for it, while oftentimes darkness and cynicism can really be the overwhelming narrative at a time. I think it just takes, and you know, this is not an original thought, but just that little bit of light can puncture that darkness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and darkness cannot extinguish light, you know? And so that's yeah. something that I think Martin's uh, work does look at, but it is definitely in a much more, um, I don't know, maybe even a callous way. And I love both um, series so much. I would say um, from a filmic standpoint, I prefer, you know, the Game of Thrones world. Whereas uh, the literature, I probably like uh, Lord of the Rings maybe a little bit more. But again, I'm talking about an A++ versus an A++. You know, like, right, right. I love both these things with all my heart. Yeah, and they're, they're similar in the fact they're fantasy and they have fantastical elements like dragons or orcs. But, they, yeah, they're doing different things. Lord of the Rings is not trying to be realistic in the way that characters talk and interact with each other. Whereas that's, that's what game of Thrones does. And I think that's why it has so much appeal, even to people that wouldn't think of themselves as, as fantasy fans. And so, yeah, they both have different perspectives. And I I like what you pointed out there that being pessimistic or cynical doesn't mean that you're more realistic. It's just a different take and what perspective you have, it matters. It's going to change the way that you interact and, how you think the system works or if the system can be changed. And you know, we're seeing that George R. R. Martin tends to be more cynical about that, that, right? Well, you can't really fix anything, so just get what power you can, but it'll also probably kill you. You know, King of Ceres <laughs> going, to, going yeah. to back to House of the Dragon, he's probably, it's someone we didn't see much in the Game of Thrones series. He's actually a good ruler. Like, he's someone who yeah. has... Uh, the highest power, but he's still a good person deep down. You know, he's somewhat flexible, unlike someone like Ned Stark, who was so tied to his honor that, you know, he got him into trouble. Yeah. Viserys is, you know, he'll he'll bend a little where he needs to, but he has morals. He has a genuine love for his family, and he's trying to do right by them. He's trying to uh, care for his daughter as best he can. But at the same time, his choices ultimately are kind of set up this whole civil war that's yeah. going to take over the whole this whole series, what it's all about. So even there, what is he saying about goodness, right? Well, I don't know. Is, do you think he's saying he should have been a little more uh, shrewd and less loving in his choices? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Like the fair is clearly, especially, you know, through the incredible lens of Patty Considine's portrayal, which mm-hmm. George R. R. Martin has said is superior 
to his book version, which is like, <laughs> I cannot imagine any higher praise that someone could, you know, give to a performer and so adapted to their work. But while Viserys is a good man, I know there is a question to be made about how good of a king he actually was. Mm. Um, you know, Otto Hightower refers to him as the fairest the peaceful, which it's like, it's definitely a better um, moniker than Megor the Cruel, but, or Eris the Mad King. But, um, you know, I think about uh, in episode one, when uh, Damon takes over the gold cloaks, so which is the city watch of King's Landing, the police force for the city. Mm. They talk about the cities in chaos, you know, and how this is the capital of, of the seven kingdoms, uh, you know, the king city, and it's, it's, uh, it's in chaos. I think about how, uh, you know, because it is the seven kingdoms, um, you know, it's not like the Ferris is enacting policies all over the continent of Westeros, you know, it's so much left to mm-hmm. the leaders of those individual kingdoms. Uh, that being said, great that he didn't go on any kind of mass slaughter or, uh, you know, war on his own nation. But, you know, one of the main uh, conflict points of the season is that um, the Stepstones, you know, which is a skipping uh, lane um, off the, uh, the, the southeast side of the continent, has been taken over by pirates. And the king's response to that is to do nothing. Mm. And if ships get sunk or destroyed, the crown will pay the damages. But again, that doesn't account for the loss of lives, the loss of, of uh, control of that part of your own realm. And so while I definitely think you could have had a lot worse things, I think that if he had not been so immobilized by his, maybe his concerns for his own future, his desires for fulfilling prophecy, maybe he could have been more animated about uh, his actual reign. Yeah, he is a good man, but that doesn't always make him a good king. Exactly. So that's kind of, right, that's the big difference with the view of Tolkien, where being a good man makes you a good king. And, you know, I think George R. R. Martin is making his question, okay, well, what does that actually look like? If, right. if goodness means, well, I just want to keep the peace at any cost, well, sometimes that actually leads to more harm. And that's where politics is never as simple as just good and evil, right? It's right. always... Uh, very, it's difficult, right? And so there's no perfect yeah. leader and being a good person doesn't automatically translate. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but, you know, George R. R. Martin in Fire and Blood, there's a quote about how even the wickedest women and cruelest men can, can do good. And so mm-hmm. I think that, and it goes the other way as well, where people who typically or, or try to at least be good in the pursuit of that can, um, you know, enact terrible cruelties on other people. Yeah. The, the ends justifying the means. Is, exactly. Yeah. That's very much, I think, something George R. R. Martin, those characters in his works would agree with, whereas that's not the case in Tolkien. So a, a major reason maybe why Tolkien and Martin have such different views on the value of hope or being good, quote unquote, as a, as a leader, I would say is probably rooted somehow in their beliefs, religious beliefs or, or otherwise. You know, as we talked about before, Tolkien was devoutly Catholic, and while Lord of the Rings is not a, a Christian allegory, you know, those themes, uh, they, they're they going to work themselves in in a lot of ways. I mean, you mentioned earlier the idea of the darkness can't overcome the light, and I mean, that's literally from John 1, uh, and so that's that's working its way out in what, what he writes, and so in a similar way, Martin's beliefs 
or lack of belief are going to affect the way that he writes. And, and that's not to say that, you know, if you're not a Christian, you can't care about goodness or have any, any hope or values, but you know, your perspective is, is going to come out in, in some sort of way. And, and Martin identifies as agnostic, uh, you know, from what I've read, he, he sounds like he's interested in spirituality, but rationally he can't uh, be convinced that there's anything more than that. And so that, again, is probably influencing this different view of, well, there's nothing outside, it's, it's all just us, it's just people you know, doing what they can to get the power and influence that they can, uh, but there's no higher uh, authority, there's no real, uh, nothing behind that call towards, towards goodness. Is that kind of how you understand? Uh, do you think that's simplifying too much their different worldviews? Um, I think in this category, that's a pretty astute, um, comparison, you know, like obviously, uh, religion pervades so much of what Tolkien writes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting though, because the actual, uh, thoughts of like a religious institution and beliefs are definitely more overt in, uh, Game of Thrones, in my opinion, you know, with like the tenets of religion and like, and the Mm -hmm. ceremony of these different, um, belief systems. Um, whereas it's, you know, in Lord of the Rings, it's oftentimes more of an, uh, an all encompassing light, you know, or, or an all, mm. or, you know, it's, it's been the very fabric of reality there that like good and evil exists and, and God and, you know, the Valinor and yeah, the Luvatar. Thank you. It's just real. It's just flat out real. There's no question about it. This is what exists. Whereas in Game of Thrones, you know, there's so many religions and they're all, fighting with one another and everyone's saying this one's right for this reason. And it's, I would say in that regard, it is much more similar to to our world. Yeah. Right. It's such an interesting comparison that nobody talks about religion in, in Lord of the Rings, right? Hobbits aren't going to church and yet it's just infused in everything. And whereas in Westeros, people are talking about religion all the time, but there's kind of this question of, are these, do these gods actually exist? Are they actually doing anything? Right. Right. We've already mentioned the seven, so real quick, just kind of thinking through, explaining some of the religions in the world of Game of Thrones, for those that are not familiar, the seven, it's kind of equivalent to uh, the Trinity, right? So it's one God, but with seven faces, and that's modeled on the medieval Catholic Church. And I think Martin's even talked about, you know, he struggled to understand how the Trinity worked uh, as, you know, a young person growing up, which, fair enough. Yeah, right. And so <laughs> in his world, a lot of, a lot of people... You know, the, the common people in this world probably just think of it being seven different gods. And, you know, as you go through the series, there's, you know, the faith becomes an, a more important part of the story with the faith militant and the high sparrow. But it, again, it doesn't really seem like the seven actually do anything. People pray to them, but as far as I can remember, we don't see those gods acting in a very clear way. I mean, do you think that's maybe a comment on Catholicism or or Christianity or at least medieval Catholicism. Yeah. I think it, I think it by and large could be a comment on, um, you know, just, uh, modern religion in general, you know, because, uh, Westeros, you know, the main continent, but not the only continent featured in, uh, the stories of house of the dragon and the game of Thrones, you know, there's three major religions, but the biggest of all, of course, is, you know, the faith of the seven, which, you know, by my, by my reflection in your own, is the only uh, major religion in this world that doesn't have overt displays of 
miracles or magic or things like that. And I definitely, mm -hmm. you know, but the light of the seven, rather the faith of the seven is the religion that causes the most um, direct violence on other people throughout the story. And I definitely think that there is a, that there's a commentary on George's worldview in there. Yeah, the gods may not be doing anything, but the people who believe in them are the people that will use the gods to say, oh, this is uh, why this happened. Uh, Certainly, yeah. yeah I, I, that's pretty telling, I think, to how he sees things. And in fact, another quote from Martin, he said, if you look at the history of the church in the Middle Ages, right, in, in the real world, you had periods where it was very worldly and you had corrupt popes and bishops, people who were not spiritual but were politicians. They were playing their own version of the Game of Thrones and they were in bed with the kings and the lords. So, I mean, again, you look at uh, actual history, and that, that is fairly true. Uh, whether or not they actually were spiritual maybe is in question. That's uh, an assumption on his part. But they definitely were playing politics, right? That, that, that's what the popes and bishops were doing. And they were in bed with the kings and lords, and, and that was influencing their decisions more than, you know, what Jesus actually said or, or what's in Scripture. And, you know, as we mentioned, so the seven don't really seem to do much. Other gods, there's what are referred to as the old gods in this world. Now, that's primarily in the north. Uh, I guess originally it was, it was original to Westeros all through there, but the north is the only place that still worships them, although by worship it just means they, they have trees and they go and kind of sit by them. It's more, you know, animism or kind of like Celtic spirituality, I think is how he, how he modeled them. Right? These gods are nameless. They're tied to nature, but whether or not they're doing anything is also kind of up in the air. You mentioned, I think this is a question of what's the difference in magic and miracles in, in a work of fantasy, right? So there are magical elements, and a lot of those do come from the north. So yeah, you have the children of the forest who are clearly magical. It's like, okay, are they tied to the old gods? Is that actually what the old gods are? I think that's a little ambiguous there. Uh, but yeah, this question of magic or, or miracles, is it the same? Is it different? It seems like in this world, magic definitely is real, right? There are fantastical, supernatural things that happen. People come back from the dead. Yeah, right. Does it come from a specific God? Now, like you mentioned, coming back from the dead is attributed to the Lord of Light. Uh, we can't remember how to pronounce his name or hollow or something like that. And so, yeah, in this, that religion, it comes from the East, and so there's not a lot of that in Westeros, but you see it kind of coming in uh, in certain places in, in the Game of Thrones series. This religion is very dualistic, right? This one god is light, but there's this great other who is, is darkness and death. And there's very intense devotion to this god. Uh, Melisandre is a priest uh, who is very influential on uh, Stannis, who is one of the kings. And it goes so far as, you know, human sacrifice for this God. And like we said, it, the, we do see people coming back from the dead through the power of these priests, and they summon shadows to do uh, various deeds. So I don't do you think that means that the Lord of Light is the one true God in this world, or uh, is there something else going on? That is such a complicated question, because I totally agree. Like, the Lord of Light, Rolor, um, you know, while it is a major religion out of Essos, it has, you know, planted in Westeros, especially by the time of a Game of Thrones. It is it is a complex question because that is the one where you see, because in addition to uh, Melisandre, there's also uh, Kinvara, who's a character in the later seasons that's in Essos who uses that. There's 
Thoros of Mir, who's a character mm-hmm. in a Game of Thrones that is also a believer of that religion. And uh, it seems like every single person, every character we see that practices its religion is able to, to harness magic somehow. However, mm-hmm. it is always so grim. You know, the magic, even though they, they claim to worship the Lord of Light, most of the magic is used to, yeah, um, conjure, conjure uh, spirits that kill people to, um, yeah, to, to bring people back from the dead, but they come back a lesser version of themselves. You know, there's a, there's a price to all of it. And so I do think about, um, is this the real God of Westeros? But then I also think about the many face God, which is another God where it, that's almost like a death cult, you know, like the, those people, you know, cause the, all the faces of God are all, you know, just different, uh, faces of people who've been killed in his service. And so then there's also the theory of, are these religions related in some sort of way? You know, it definitely is. It definitely, I think, paints a big picture of Martin's worldview, how whenever you see, quote unquote, real gods doing stuff, it's almost always to hurt people, you know, which I think mm. definitely is a commentary on, you know, the way that religion and organized religion can hurt people in our world. And so maybe, again, we don't know exactly everything that he intends in this work, but uh, I would read it as, yeah, there, there is something supernatural, mm-hmm. but it's really not coming from any god. It's just people attaching different names to these, these magical things that, that right. happen. Uh, even in this world, that is sometimes the way that people think about religion, that it's just different names for the same thing. And, right. and maybe sometimes there's some truth to that, that you know we're all... We can't name God fully, and and we all are coming from experience and and scripture, from all sorts of different religions. Is trying to name, um, you know, transcendent things that have happened, and language is always going to fall short. Uh, but yeah, when it's coming from someone who seems to have a very negative perspective on the effect of religion on the world and on politics specifically, uh, that seems to be a, a bit of an influence there. Now. We want to bring in another perspective here a little bit and think about uh, the politics of God in Scripture, the politics of Yahweh. Uh, Now, this is really a major storyline through a lot of Scripture. The books of Samuel and Kings kind of tells this story best. And what's interesting is that the Hebrew Bible is pretty ambivalent about the monarchy, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. So you see different voices like in Judges where it's saying, well, yeah, everybody's doing what they thought was right because there was no king. Whereas then you get to, to Samuel, and when the people finally ask for a king so they can be like all the other nations, uh, Samuel the prophet warns them, yeah, okay, you can have a king, but he's going to take your sons for his armies, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your crops, this is not going to be good for you. The idea that God is, is meant to be their, their true king, okay. uh, but they, they don't want that. And you know, we think about certain kings being good, in scripture, like David is the one that we lift up, or he was a man after God's own heart, but he's actually pretty violent. Uh, he does some problematic things, including uh, some sexual violence. You know, when I think about the books, these books of scripture, if you actually film them, you know, as explicitly as it says, it would be pretty similar to Game of Thrones. Right? Sure. It would not be safe for children either even though we tell our kids these Bible stories, which uh, that's another conversation about whether that's a good Certainly. idea or not. Now, obviously, in, in Scripture, um, God is, is an actor. God is real. God is the one anointing these kings and these prophets. 
but even when you do read these these books, divine activity is often you know, less explicit than what you might expect. God is not breaking in and doing miraculous things every other page or commenting uh, all the time on, on what's happening. And just like in Game of Thrones, just like in the real world, you get characters in these books that pay lip service to God, but then they just kind of rule their kingdoms like any other king would. Mm-hmm. You know, Israel is, was meant to be different because the king is not supposed to be the ultimate authority, which is you know, what you assume being king means, but, you know, the king in Israel was meant to be subject to Torah, to God's law, and, and to be corrected by the prophets, and the, the king is meant to enact this justice that God has already described, but uh, it rarely works out, because, again, these were people, even though, you know, these are uh, stories that aren't giving us a lot of details about their lives, it's not as simple as this, they're good and, and they're evil. It, history is more complicated. And so the, the Jewish, the Israelite monarchy, eventually it leads in exile and destruction. And so there comes this messianic hope. And so again, it's this idea of, well, we're still hoping for a king, but is this just going to be another king like the ones we had before? And, and how is that going to be any different? Or is it a new, a new kind of king? And so that's even important as you go into the New Testament, these expectations that the Messiah is going to going to show up, and there were a lot of people that, that claimed to be messiahs because they were under the rule of the Roman Empire, and they wanted to go back to being free. All right, make Israel great again, sure. uh, and that's that's the the atmosphere, that's the world that Jesus comes into, and and so as we think about kingship in the Bible, a lot of these same questions are there: of okay, where is God actually acting? These are people where God is the is a reality, but there's a lot of uncertainty about what God wants and, and different voices and thinking about, okay, what does that look like you know, when it comes to policies? You know, a wise king like Solomon uh, was actually pretty abusive to his people, conscripting them into uh, forced labor. And so it's, it's never as simple as, well, this person was good, and so they were a good king. That's sometimes the the story that we tell in Bible classes and, and to our kids, but uh, if you really just read Scripture, it's I think it's a little more honest about how that works. Um, you could maybe even argue that Scripture uh, sometimes seems more in line with, with Martin's view of goodness and leadership than, than what Tolkien uh, seems to assume. I got to pick up Kings again. Check this out. Hey, there you go. All right. Read your Bibles, people. It's actually <laughs> sometimes pretty exciting. Like I said, yeah. uh, I... I don't know. Uh, like, I doubt HBO or anyone is gonna like go and film the Bible. But you know, that's that's something I would really love to see. Like, let's do an accurate account of the life of David. I'm sure a lot of Christians would kind of hate it because, like, they're making him look bad. Like, well, right? Go read your Bible, and he uh, kind of comes across that way. Yeah, isn't one of the whole things is that God loves us because we're not perfect, you know, <laughs> or like rather, in spite of our lack of perfection. Yes, uh, but also, I think, and this is an important thing to recognize, right? Okay, God still works through David. That doesn't mean that God condones everything that he does. And being a good ruler is still complicated. You can be a, a quote-unquote good person, but that's really not usually the, the categories that, that Scripture often uses. It focuses on, well, did they worship Yahweh or did they worship other gods? Uh, but it's it's always more complicated than that, and that's 
I think that's where Martin's work can be helpful to see being good, being a good leader is, is complicated. And we want to uh, continue to think through what, what does that look like? But for those of us that, that take faith maybe more seriously than, than he does, we want that to be a part of how we understand politics. You know, as I think about religion and politics today, you know, maybe one of the reasons that Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon are so appealing is they, they kind of reflect our hopelessness about political leadership. And as I mentioned in uh, some other episodes, we live in this secular age where hope in a transcendent being is it's obscure. It's it's hard to fully believe in, even if if we want to. And and so that's why Martin's work connects with us, where we feel hopeless. We feel like all these people in power are are pretty terrible. But what can we learn today about you know from Game of Thrones' perspective on on religion and on politics and how that plays out? Do you think there's anything instructive for us? I think that's an excellent way of putting it. I would say it's very illuminating. You know, I think about how, because, you know, going over the dynasty of the Targaryen kings, so a couple generations after the story has the dragon, uh, there's the ninth Targaryen king, uh, Baylor, uh, Baylor the Blessed. Uh, Game of Thrones fans might recall that name from the Sept of Baylor, which is, you know, the mm. main, the Vatican, if you will, of King's Landing <laughs> that uh, Baylor the Blessed built during his reign. He was... Uh, the first, and I believe maybe only Targaryen king that was extremely devout to the faith of the seven. Um, but it, uh, it caused his own difficulties because it caused, while uh, he was well beloved by the people, um, he was so um, enraptured with making sure that he was devout of his faith that he died an early death from, uh, from fasting and from depriving himself of what he needed to live because he, he believed that if he was devout enough, uh, he could be nourished by, you know, only the light of the seven and then he died. Mm. And so, (laughs) which, and then his successor, um, you know, definitely did not continue his line of thought. So then, you know, you got to think about as leaders who employ, you know, religious beliefs, either, um, either earnestly or cynically, you know, how is this going to have a ripple effect, not just during their reign or administration, but also in the future? Because oftentimes, you know, a society will, um, you know, if it will have a, a whiplash effect where, you know, the income, the, the new ruler or the new president or, or monarch or prime minister, or what have you, will be such a departure from uh, the previous uh, leader that it can cause, you know, all sorts of uh, trouble on a on a smaller scale amongst the small folk or the citizen population. You know, if you're forcing these different beliefs, yeah, uh, it, it creates all these issues. I mean, that's part of the story as you go further in in, in Game of Thrones and the different uh, religious leaders that uh, Cersei, when she's kind of in power, she's trying to use uh, religion to shore up her own power, and that comes back and <laughs> kind of faith, bites her. Through the faith militant. Um, Chris, let me ask you, are you a fan at all? It's unrelated, but it's coming in. You're like, where's he going? Do you like the show The West Wing at all? The West Wing, created by Aaron Sorkin? I've, I've only seen some. Uh, my wife, Anna Jane, has watched a lot more than than I have, and so I've, I've seen some. through. The, I know I need it's great, and I need to watch more. Great show, love it. But the reason I bring it up is because in season seven, the final season of the show, 
Um, the main crux of the season is a presidential election, and each candidate is uh, is a main character. So it's not like this is the good team, mm. the bad team. Both characters are equally explored. And uh, one of the characters, um, who's actually played by Alan Alda, he says uh, in an interview, um, if you uh, if you require your political leaders to pass some sort of a religious litmus test, you are begging to be lied to. And I think that that applies both in the world of Westeros, both in the world of, you know, 2022 America and and the Earth globe at large. I think when we require our um, political leaders to subscribe to our same beliefs, it's it's only going to cause harm both to our uh, political governmental body as well as our religion as well. I think about going back to the founders of this nation, the whole thing was about um, you know, uh, freedom of religion. Whereas now mm -hmm. today, it seems like every issue in American politics, at least is so heavily partisan and it all comes back to religion, you know, like which, which party is actually, you know, following God or Christian. And all that does is breed resentment and fear and, you know, the exact opposite of all the things that. Um, you know, Jesus and God have instructed us to do. I think about, um, you know, that, that what Jesus said with render under Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. And it seems like all the time, um, you know, uh, modern people or people, you know, people, this has always been the case. This is not a modern yeah. problem by any means. Mm -hmm. But, well, you know, we love, to, we love to ignore some stuff and we love to embrace wholeheartedly other things and Usually the things that we embrace are the stuff that's easier for us and the stuff that we shun are the things that are more challenging. Yeah, it's so often the, the debate is, well, is God on our side or, is, or is, is God on the other side? And God doesn't take sides like that. Um, and that was, like you said, that was kind of part of what America was trying to do, get away from this state-sponsored religion and, and yes. the one true religion. But we still it's just a human impulse to want to think God's on our side and use God to, to prop up whatever, you know, political beliefs we have. And so instead of thinking of it that way, to think, okay, how can we take what is the best of whatever we believe and use that to bless the most people, you know, as, as a pastor, as a minister, you know, you hear a lot of people saying like, well, just don't be political. Right. And, you know, when you're saying don't be partisan, Right, don't just be a shill for this party or that party. Okay, that's that's definitely not my role. That's not what we need to be doing. But I mean, what is politics other than loving your neighbor on a large scale? Mm. Loving your neighbor how, with how you vote, right? That's the those things are always going to be tied together. And so that needs to be the question we're thinking about. You know, earlier we read this quote from Martin where he's talking about, you know, in the medieval church was playing the Game of Thrones, getting in bed with kings. But how do the modern American church, how do we get in bed with parties and presidents? This is the danger that we always have to, have to think about. I mean, I think that was the temptation that, that Jesus had to face in the desert from the devil, right? Just bow down to me, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. What that's saying is, do things my way. Use power the way that uh, the world uses power, and you can have more, you can have all of it. And Jesus rejects that and says, no, the, the means do not justify the ends. Mm -hmm. But so often 
we have bought into that. And so every time the church gets in bed with the state, the church kind of gets screwed. And it's, it doesn't work well for the, the state either. Um, and so there should be a healthy relationship between our religion and politics. I, I think it's also wrong to say, well, just don't bring your uh, religious views into it at all when you vote. Well, you can't. If this is your deepest held beliefs, yeah. this is your, your fundamental worldview of what you think is good, well, how am I going to ignore that? I can't. Uh, but to think about where am I, kind of like you talked about, where am I forcing this on someone else or where am I trying to do what will bless the most people, even people that don't believe what I do religiously or politically? Well, as you know, we're, we're thinking about an alternative approach to politics, you know, Game of Thrones, the books of Samuel and Kings, modern America, sometimes they all feel similar because they're all playing by those same rules. Might makes right, mm -hmm. uh, violence uh, it can be redemptive. And so what I see in Jesus is trying to offer something different, that, that he is a lord of a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom of nonviolence, a, a kingdom that disarms the powers uh, that overcomes evil with good rather than more evil. Uh, it, it's a form of power that comes in self-emptying love. And even though this is what he was preaching and doing in his life 2,000 years ago, and even though we have this uh, church that's been around for 2,000 years, so often we have not bought into his politics, but we've just attached him to the same sort of game. And so if we're going to stop playing the Game of Thrones... Um, how can we do things in a different way? You know, I think it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about the show, The House of the Dragon, right? The dragon is the symbol of power for the Targaryen house. And you go to the book of Revelation, the dragon is John's symbol for the ultimate evil. Yeah. Um, the, the devil is giving power to the beast. Uh, it was the Roman Empire in, in his time, but it's any beastly empire since then. And Jesus is portrayed as a slaughtered lamb. And so that's, that's our politics, that we are not trying to be dragons and take as much power as we can and devour anyone uh, who gets in our way. But like lambs, we offer ourselves. And that's not a show of weakness, but acknowledging that it's just a different form of power and it's the only power that, that actually works. As we're closing, I uh, have a quote here from a book called Scandalous Witness by Lee Camp. Uh, he's actually at uh, Lips Lipscomb University, so this is from our tradition. It's one of my favorite books from recent years, and he's talking about you know, Christianity as a, a way of being in the world, kind of a, its own politics. So here's what he says uh, about our role as, as Christians, as a church. Christianity shall not prostitute itself by worshiping the flag, pledging allegiance, or singing the glories of the nation's wars. It shall not reduce itself to a chaplain dispensing pious pablum to ease the conscious, to give divine sanction to the very deeds and practices that the God revealed in Christ has condemned. But Christianity shall be an even better citizen, because it does not worship the flag or pledge its allegiance, and because it in instead pledges in its baptism to a transnational community of reconciliation, forgiveness, and hospitality, which shall not be founded by sectarian oaths or accidental geographical boundaries. It will be neither prostitute nor chaplain, but a witness 
a voice crying in the wilderness to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, a people embodying an alternative politic in the world, neither Republican nor Democrat, but radically conservative and outrageously liberal, a servant helping all, even when possible, the principalities and powers to fulfill their created purpose of serving, not enslaving, not slaughtering humankind. And to be such a people, Christianity must know, too, that God alone is the hope of the world. And this is to say, of course, the United States is not. So that's a bit of a hot take there. Uh, I'm sure nobody had any problems with anything he had to say, but if, if the way of Jesus is our only true allegiance, that's always going to challenge anything else. And we have to ask, when are we making uh, powers and parties and systems an idol? That's the biggest threat. That was what brought down Israel's monarchy. And while we don't worship statues, at, le- at least <laughs> in theory we don't, how is idolatry still the root problem that we're always facing? So I know I just preached a long sermon there, but what, what hopes do you have? Uh, again, bringing all of this, bringing the, the Game of Thrones worldview, the, the scriptural worldview, the politics of Jesus, what can this look like for us? Where can we find a hopeful way of living in this world now? Well, for starters, let me say I've not I've not ever heard that quote before. I'm not familiar with that, and I I thought that was riveting. Really, gave me a lot to consider. But I think when it comes to um, how to you know enact in our own life, I think it's about bringing it back to that smaller scale. You know, I you know people oftentimes think about you know well people will judge me for you know like what I look like on um, the preconceived notions, and anyone can say this. You know, people will assume you're a certain political affiliation because of how you look, or they'll assume, you know, a certain, uh, you know, economic situation or, or anything. And this can be, uh, you know, largely negative for most individuals. And when I feel just personally that, you know, this world can be too big or that there's too much to combat against, I think about my own intimate life. I think about the people I work with, the people in my neighborhood, my friends, my family. And I think, am I showing these people kindness and love? Am I, am I offering the best of myself to these people? Am I modeling, um, you know, patience and, you know, all of the, all of the beatitudes and the fruits of the spirit? Like, am I, am I, am I trying my best to, to be, to love my neighbor as myself? And I think when I focus just on that, I have a lot more gratification in my personal life and I feel a lot more fulfillment in my spiritual life. Yeah, that's such a great point that we want to just do top down. If we if we can get all the power, then we can make things right, right? Right. Like Daenerys, we can break the wheel of oppression. But what happens? She ends up just becoming another oppressor. And that's that's human history. And the way of Jesus, again, he was offered the chance to claim that throne and he gave it up. His ministry was this grassroots going to people where they're at and loving them and and offering healing and kindness. And that's what we're called to do too. It, it's, I think, even harder in this day where we can know about everything that's going on in the world at, at every single moment and we get caught up in, in the large-scale stuff. And that stuff does matter. But mm-hmm. what can I do today to love my actual neighbors and my community? Um, that's where this is going to be worked out. So you don't need to be on a throne. You don't need to to claim all of this power. You don't need to have a, a name that will last. Uh, what can you do today in love? I think that's the politics of the lamb. 
Well, as we're wrapping up, we're going to move now to one of our favorite segments every week, our pop culture consolations and desolations. So this is where we think about what has been life-giving or life-taking in the world of pop culture. So uh, Jefferson, what's something this week that's been uh, giving you life, something you recommend? Oh man, well, I definitely want to evangelize for uh, the show Andor on Disney+. Plus. It's a Star Wars show starring uh, Diego Luna. It's got a very big cast, including Stellan Skarsgård, some of his best acting work in like a mm. decade, I would say. Right. Um, absolutely incredible. Like I cannot evangelize for the show enough. Uh, created and showrun by Tony Gilroy, who uh, was a writer on the Bourne movies, wrote Michael Clayton. Like this is a guy who knows, you know, it's tying to today. Uh, it, it very much is a commentary on on our world in so many ways. And I think oftentimes, particularly Star Wars, can get lost in the iconography a little bit. Mm-hmm. Whereas this show, so if you're so if anybody out there is feeling um, Star Wars fatigue. I would say Andor on Disney Plus is the cure for that, and I can't recommend it enough. All right, yeah, I'm I'm a little behind on it, but I've I've liked it so far, and yeah, it's it's getting into the politics, right? It's called Star Wars, but mm-hmm. so often it's all just this big picture, good and evil, and that's good too. But right. it's it's nice to get a different perspective. Well, yeah, just another thing that I'm loving right now um, in the video game world. So just recently released on the Nintendo Switch was the Japanese role-playing game Persona 5. I've never played a bunch of uh, known as JRPGs before, Mm -hmm. um, just some. But playing this game, really loving it. Um, So if you're interested in, you know, a big scale story, it's a really big game with um, really great production. I would recommend Persona 5. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, actually, my first consolation this week is, is similar. It's a game on the Nintendo Switch, an obscure one called The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, oh, the best. <laughs> it is. I mean, I've been playing this game since it came out in 2017. My son is a huge fan. Uh, it's going to be part of our Halloween costumes. But, yeah, it's just one of those games you can always keep going back to. Um, and I know a, a ton of people love it. I'm trying the master mode, which is like the hard mode for the Ooh, first time. Yeah. And so that's a, a new challenge. Uh, so that's, that's been fun. I've also been playing a lot of breath of the wild this year. Like I always, yeah. that's an evergreen game that I revisit all the time. Like always playing breath of the wild. I feel like, yeah, it's, it's just such like the, the world that it creates. Uh, you can just get lost mm-hmm. in it. And the sense of wonder totally like, is, is just so amazing. My other consolation this week would be some some superhero news that Henry Cavill is going to get to do another Superman movie. They haven't actually given any details Hallelujah. about it. Um, I don't know if I've gone on the record here as not being a Zack Snyder fan, and so I did not yeah, enjoy. I'm, you're in good company. Any, I did not enjoy any of his uh, films with Henry Cavill as Superman, but I love Henry Cavill. And I'm excited. He's already said that like this is going to be a happy, joyful Superman, which is how Superman should be. And so I'm very much looking forward to what that's going to be like. Henry Cavill just seems like such a great dude. He's a huge nerd. Yeah, I'm excited for whenever that's going to happen to get a cinematic, good Superman. So, all right. Well, it sounds like neither of us had any desolations this week. So we're being positive. We're being more Tolkien than Martin this week. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for being on the show, Jefferson. I appreciate your insight. Uh, Great conversation. Hope to see you again soon. Yeah, Chris, this was a blast. Thank you so much. Um, Love the show. Looking forward 
to uh, many more to come and uh, congrats on all you're doing. Really looking forward to it. Well, as we finish the show today, I want to bring you an important message. We talked a lot today about how the church is not meant to function like some dominating political force. And it's the same with this podcast. There are times when I wish there were some podcast power on high that I could claim and just force everyone to listen, but that's not how it works. Like the good news, news about this podcast can only be spread through personal interactions, through grassroots efforts. So will you be a part of our alternative podcast community by sharing on social media, by writing a review, or just subscribing if you haven't already? In the game of podcasts, you win or you die. So don't let this podcast die. As always, this show is produced by me. Special thanks again to Jefferson Ferguson for coming on and chatting with me today. Our theme music is Be Thou My Vision from the 8-Bit Hymnal by Mr. Tyler Larson. For more Pop Culture Pastor content, follow me on Instagram or at Facebook at Pop Culture Pastor. Now, for our next episode in two weeks, we're doing something special. My friend Ben and I are going to be doing a recap of a single episode of The Simpsons. So I encourage you to watch that episode ahead of time. It's going to be Homer the Heretic from Season 4, Episode 3, which you can find on Disney+. Plus. It's actually going to be launching possibly a new project called The Simp Sons of God. So in two weeks, watch that episode and join us here again. You are now dismissed. Go in peace.